You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our Father, we do thank you for this morning, and we commit this time to you with the trust that you are going to use it to our edification and our equipping as saints. We pray that you would help us to think rightly about your truth and your word, and may you be glorified and may you be pleased with all that we discuss here this morning. We thank you for um, the beautiful uh, opportunity that we have to glorify and honor you in our service and through our worship and in your word. We do pray for Jess, that you would strengthen him and his body and help him to get better this next week and to be able to return here to us. And we pray that during this day he would get the rest that is needed, and we pray that you'd bring healing to him. Thank you again for the privilege that it is to be your child and to be your church and to be called to be here and to know you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Q&A. If you have a question... Okay, good question. Demon possession. Why is it that during the time of Jesus, <clears throat> you see all of these um, very odd and seemingly unique manifestations of demons that when they got into the presence of Jesus or um, came near him, they would fall down like the, the man, and I, I don't even know where it's at in the Gospels, that tried to, his boy tried to throw himself into the fire. Do we have that type of demon possession happening today? Uh, I would answer that by saying, yes, I do think that we do have that type of demon possession happening today. There's no reason to think that it happened only during those three years that Jesus was here on the face of the earth. So now the question becomes, if we have demon possession like that happening today, why the bizarre manifestations in the time of Christ? <clears throat> and why don't we see the same thing happening? Why don't we see the same types of manifestations happening today? I think, um, because... To, to follow up with your question, if we were to see the same types of manifestations, then we would expect that people would be coming into our church services and falling down and manifesting these signs of demon possession. Now, I'm going to set aside for a second the question of whether a Christian can be demon-possessed. I don't believe that a Christian can be demon-possessed. I believe that a Christian can be tormented by a demon, oppressed by Satan, but not possessed. Oppressed and possessed are two entirely different things. So why in the life of Jesus do we see these types of manifestations more than we see them today? It may be that if we went to a different culture, a different country, that we would see the same types of manifestations. That we don't see that maybe necessarily in our culture, but if you went to some place where Satan was worshipped openly by, by tribal peoples, that you would see those types of manifestations. That might be. I've never seen any manifestation like that. So that would be one, that's one thing to throw into the mix. A second consideration would be this. During the life of Jesus and during the time of the Gospels, his confrontation with the demonic was something different than anything else before and anything else since. And here's why. Jesus' confrontation with the satanic realm during his ministry was intended to demonstrate his power over demons. So he elicited those types of confrontations. He pursued those types of confrontations. And they were demonstrations of power that he uniquely um, manifested for the <clears throat> sorry for the purpose of demonstrating his power over the demonic, so that when they would accuse him, well, you cast out Satan by the power of Satan. 
he could say, if I cast out power by the Satan, by the power of, if I cast out Satan by the power of Satan, then Satan is divided. I can't be doing it by his power. I have to be doing it by a power greater. And the Pharisees couldn't argue against that. His demonstrations of demonic, of exorcism of demonic and commanding of demons and his confrontation with demons was intended to demonstrate his messianic credentials and his power. So that's why we see such a conflict and that's why we see the type of conflict that we see. I think another thing that we need to keep in mind, and this is, we're going to, I'm going to be getting into this in newsletter articles, so hopefully I'll be able to articulate it a little bit better than I am here. Another thing we see in the life of Jesus is um, a particularly intense stirring in the satanic realm while Jesus walked to this earth. Have you ever looked out over across a field and you, and uh, like on a late summer evening or afternoon as the sun is beginning to set and it seems so peaceful and everything, but then you go out and as you walk through the field, what do you see? You see grasshoppers jumping around your feet. You see bugs flipping back and forth. You see these swarms of, of insects all over the place. I think that in a way that's a good illustration of what happened with Jesus when he walked into this realm, when he stepped onto planet Earth, what was seemingly beneath the surface and not visible at all, when the Holy Son of God appeared on Earth, suddenly we saw the swarm start to become active. That, I think, is what was happening during the life of Jesus. That's why we see those types of manifestations. You do see demon possession afterwards in the Gospel or in the book of Acts, um, Acts 16 with the woman who was the slave girl in Philippi, that Paul exercised a demon from her. Um, was there another one? I'm trying to remember a specific illustration of a demon possession in Acts. I don't think I can't think of another one off the top of my head. You'd think that I would be able to remember that, wouldn't you? But it does mention exorcisms as being something and casting out demons as being something that the apostles did. And the apostles, it's called a sign and a wonder in the New Testament. So why the type of activity during the life of Jesus? Because it was intended to show his messianic credentials, and it was a response or at least the activity of the demonic realm to something unique that was happening at that time, and that is the Holy Son of God walking on this earth, confronting those powers for that purpose. Does that make sense? Carol? But this could be that something so Right. I think I ran across a demon-possessed guy one time. I've met... Dave, you're demon-possessed? You raised his hand. What's that? It was for 30 years. I don't think it was you that I ran across. I I ran across a guy that I just, I had chills from the instant I saw him until he was, until we had parted company. And the whole time I thought, if if ever I've been in the presence of a demon-possessed guy, this was it. And he just, I felt it. So, but other than that, I don't know that I've ever confronted a demon-possessed person. So Carol's question, yeah. Yeah. I do think that people today are demon-possessed and can be demon-possessed. So the question is what, I think what the question that you're getting at is how then do we confront that or should we confront it or is are we just not confronting it? And I would say that we are called to confront it and I believe that the biblical way that you and I are called to confront demon possession is not through exorcisms but through the preaching of the gospel. So I don't believe that Christians today are called to perform exorcisms because exorcisms, every time you see it in the New Testament, Every time it's talked about, when it's talked about, it is classified as a sign and a wonder. So I don't call, I don't think that we are called to exercise demons in the way that Jesus and the apostles did, because that's, for one, it's not necessary. For two, it's a sign or wonder. I don't presume that I'm able to heal people by touching them or walk on water or multiply bread and fish or exercise demons. It's just not something that we're called to do as believers. 
How, how is it that a demon is cast out of an individual? What needs to happen? Well, let me ask you a series of questions. What is it that delivers somebody from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light? The salvation, the gospel does. That's what delivers somebody from darkness to light. What is it that translates somebody from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God's dear son? From Colossians chapter 1. It is the gospel. What is it that sets somebody free and regenerates them and fills them with the Holy Spirit? It is believing the gospel. What is the power of God unto salvation to anyone who will believe? It is the gospel. So what is it that we are called to do to confront the forces of darkness? It is to preach the gospel. I don't believe it's exorcisms. I think exorcisms are something that's from the past. I don't think it's something that's necessary for today. I don't think it's necessary even to pave the way for the gospel. What else is to say that? I'll get to your question in just a second. Let me finish my thought. To say that when we need to exercise the demon, then present the gospel to them, is to say that the gospel itself is not sufficient to deal with the problem of this person's bondage to darkness. What is it that sets somebody free from their father who is Satan and makes them a child of God? It is believing the gospel. When somebody believes the gospel, they are delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. They're translated from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God's dear son. They're raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. They're given new life, the indwelling of the spirit of God, and all of the other bondages and all of the other oppressions and all of the other possessions are, are instantly changed immediately. Nothing else is necessary but the gospel. Thomas. What's the difference between an exorcism and communicating the gospel? Well, an exorcism was a power encounter in the New Testament. Like with, um, you can have somebody who gets exercised that didn't necessarily get saved. Like with Paul in Acts chapter 16 and the demonic slave girl. He exercised her, but it wasn't just through preaching the gospel. It was a demonstration of his power as an apostle over the forces of darkness. So somebody can be somebody can be delivered from a a possession without being transferred into the kingdom of light. God has the ability to do that. So Jesus's confrontations with the demonic were intended to demonstrate his messianic credentials to display his power. Today, that power resides in the gospel. So that in preaching the gospel and believing the gospel, somebody in, in believing the gospel, somebody is set free from their sin. It's not the preaching of the gospel itself which delivers somebody from darkness. It's when that gospel is believed by the person to whom it is preached. So if I had a room full of demonic people, it wouldn't just be presenting the gospel and all of a sudden all of them are exercised. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that when somebody is under the bondage of Satan and a child of his and in bondage to their sin in the kingdom of darkness, when the gospel is presented to them, they believe the gospel, they are delivered from all of that. No exorcism, no second work of grace, no further work is needed. They are entirely and completely set free from all of that. Judy. What do I think of all the senseless killings like what happened in Tucson, Arizona? Could the guy be demon-possessed? I think he could be. I mean, I don't know for certain because I don't know him. Um, I don't think that somebody needs to be demon-possessed to be capable of that type of hideous evil. I think the dark human heart itself is that is capable of that type of hideous evil. And... Apart from the restraining grace of God in the life of this world, I think that we would see more of that happening on a scale that's utterly beyond our comprehension. I think God's grace restrains sin. It holds it back. And it's it's amazing to me that every pagan doesn't do that. That's what surprises me. It doesn't surprise me that an unbeliever would go kill a bunch of people. What surprises me is that every unbeliever doesn't do that. Because when we understand the depths of sin and the depravity and wickedness of the human heart, it should amaze us that every unbeliever you know doesn't go out and do that ten times a day until restrained by government. 
part of the restraining grace of God is that that sin, the full effects of sin is held back in the lives of unbelievers. That is God's restraining grace. It's common grace. It's just part of what God does so that we can live on this earth. If the, if the full brunt of human sin were allowed to express itself each and every day, it would be Tucson, Arizona in every city in this country every day because that's just the nature of human depravity. So is it necessary for somebody to be demon-possessed to be capable of that type of evil? No, it's not. And I would say that somebody can be demon-possessed and not do that type of evil as well. Not every demon-possessed person is a serial killer or a mass murderer. Damn. Where would I take somebody in the Bible that believes and practices that healing is that they think they have the gift of healing or that we should be doing healing? Uh, my question to an individual who believed that would be, was everybody in the New Testament always healed? Is it God's will to heal everybody? And it's, it's clearly not because there are examples in Scripture. Uh, Paul told Timothy to drink a little wine for his stomach's sake. Timothy had a, a um, stomach ailment that Paul prescribed a drinking wine for his stomach's sake. Uh, Paul says in... No, not Philippians. It's Second Timothy. Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. One of his companions, Paul left him sick. Paul had a thorn in the flesh that he was not healed from. Um, Epaphroditus, Philippians chapter 2, was sick almost to the point of death, but God had mercy on him. And Paul talks in Philippians 2 about being anxious over Epaphroditus, that God had mercy not only on Epaphroditus, but also on me. Because Paul couldn't imagine his ministry and the loss of having Epaphroditus die. So the question then would be, well, why didn't Paul just heal Trophimus, heal Timothy, heal Epaphroditus? Or why didn't Paul go visit Peter and have Peter heal Paul of his thorn in the flesh? The answer is because it's not always God's will for us to always be healed. There are times when affliction and suffering is God's will for us, and it's sanctified for our good, and we need to submit to that. So then my second my second line of arguing would be to say, what was the purpose of healing in the New Testament? Was um, was healing ever performed on a Christian in the New Testament? Was a believer ever the recipient of a miraculous healing in the New Testament? Lazarus? Well, that's the resurrection from the dead. Well, <laughs> guess it's the ultimate healing, yeah. Guess it would be a healing. I'm thinking of a physical healing in the life of Jesus or the life of the apostles from sickness. I can think of people who were believers who brought somebody to Jesus to have them healed. Um, just going through the book of Acts, Acts chapter 3, the man who was lame at the, at the beggar's gate, the beggar who was lame at the gate of the temple, Peter healed him. Um, no evidence that he was a believer when that happened. Uh, going through the book of Acts, I cannot remember, and I think I brought this out when we were in the book of Acts, at the end of the book of Acts, there's no clear-cut example anywhere in the book of Acts where a believer was healed physically. By a supernatural, people got better, but no example where, as a miracle, a believer was the recipient of that miracle. I can't think of any. Right. Right. So then you have people, that's a good example. Then you have people in the Gospels who, like the lady who had the hemorrhage of blood and she touched the robe of Jesus' garment. Um, 
the nobleman's son in John 4 that we're looking at last week and today, that would be another example. But he, but his son is the one that was healed. But Jesus did the healing and request to the man who obviously had some amount of faith or belief about Jesus. So I guess what I'm thinking is, since we're talking about New Testament times and now after the death resurrection of Jesus as an act of spiritual gift of healing in the New Testament, can we look at one instance in the book of Acts, a clear-cut example where a believer, a Christian, was healed miraculously by an apostle? And I don't, I don't know of any example. So then the question would be, what was the purpose of the gift of healing in the New Testament? It's called a sign and a wonder. Healings and exorcisms are signs and wonders. And what was the purpose of signs and wonders? The purpose of signs and wonders was to authenticate the message and the messenger. So the apostles and Jesus did not do signs and wonders for the purpose of just making life better for people that they knew. They didn't do it for the purpose of demonstrations of power or raising money or getting on TV or any of that. They did it as an authentication of their message. Um, Paul says the signs of an apostle were done among you. What were the signs of an apostle? The ability to speak in tongues, the ability to heal people, the ability to exercise demons. These signs, these miraculous things, were the signs of an apostle. How could you tell a true or false apostle from a false apostle? By the signs that they did. False apostles could not do what Paul could do. That was the authentication of his ministry. So did I miss anything there? There are two examples in the book of Acts where somebody who was not an apostle is said to perform signs and wonders. Acts chapter 8, I think it's Philip. Um, Philip was a deacon in the New Testament. Philip was somebody closely associated with the apostolic ministry. Philip was actually commissioned by the apostles and worked closely with the apostles, so that's one exception. The second exception is in Acts uh, 13, I think it's or 13 or 14, where it says that Barnabas did signs. But who was Barnabas closely associated with? Who did he work with? Part of Paul's ministry. Okay, what would it do with the people who say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons and do healings and all these things in your name? Are those people that do that believers or unbelievers? Jesus says, depart from me. Not I don't know you now, but I never knew you. So they're unbelievers. These people have never been saved. These are false believers who are doing things in the name of Jesus and they think that what they are doing is the genuine article. Now, can you think of anybody today who is utterly convinced that they have the gift of healing and that what they're doing is the genuine real deal who are themselves unbelievers? Yeah, just to, we could I mean we could do the list. We had Justin Peters here who presented those people to us. Those are the types of people that I think is being described in Matthew chapter 7. They're unbelievers. What they're doing is not the genuine article. They're convinced that they're doing the genuine article. I, I don't know if Benny Hinn is so much convinced that what he's doing. I think Benny Hinn knows that what he's doing is a fraud, but I think there are guys in that movement, even pastors of churches our size and the same size, that do those types of things, that think what they're doing is the real deal. And they're unbelievers because they don't have the gospel rights. Not, don't get me wrong. It's not the fact that they're involved in signs and wonders and doing this thing that makes them unbelievers. They just don't have the gospel right. And they have believed something that's wrong. They have believed something about Jesus that is wrong and the gospel that is wrong. And so they're involved in all of these things, but all the while they're not even saved. Do you think it's possible that people who are unbelievers, who are children of Satan, are able to do miracles by the power of Satan? It is possible. 
So even if the miracles being described in Matthew 7 are the genuine article, it's still possible that those miracles could be the product of Satan for the purpose of deceiving many, even while the people who are doing them think that they're doing them in the power and by the name of Jesus, that that's the power behind it. Diane. Yeah, so Diane said, so then you should stay away from it because don't go into the, that realm of signs and wonders and healing and start trafficking in that crowd lest you give Satan a foothold or subject yourself to it. I think it's entirely possible for somebody to do that. I don't know if that, that's the case all the time. I think there are people who honestly don't know any better. Their heart is right. They're genuine believers who pursue this because they think that this is what the Bible teaches. They read through the Gospels. They read through the Bible, and all they see are miracles everywhere, which is true. There are a lot of miracles in the Bible. But what they fail to do is step back and say, okay, it's over a 6,000-year period of time. The miracles happen by certain people at certain time periods for certain purposes. So why did they happen, and why are they recorded? This, If this were the record, um, this is one way of looking at it is saying, between the pages of this book, I see miracles all over the place. And the other way of looking at it is to say, in the course of 6,000 years of human history, this is all the miracles I see. And when you look at it like that, it's not a lot. It's not a lot of miracles. This has got a lot of miracles in it because the miracles are recorded for a purpose. But they're recorded for the purpose of authenticating the revelation. So it's not that just because somebody pursues signs and wonders that they're necessarily demon-possessed or, or can be or even will be. It's just I think that I think that there are people who are genuinely in that interested in those things and practicing those things. I think that they're deceived. I don't think it's legitimate. And I think that Satan co-ops a large part of that movement for his own purposes. Can he co-opt that even with saved people? I think Satan, I think he could co-opt it even with saved people without possessing the saved people. Just the presence of the deception itself and what it does to people in leading people astray to pursue those things. Yeah, it certainly can be a, dis- a distraction and a large one as well. I understand why people would be drawn to it if you have a sick child. We saw this with Justin Peters and some of the testimonies that he shared. If you have a sick child, you have something in your family that oppresses you like that, you would be drawn to that. You want, all of us want that hope or that confidence that we are, that we, that God can do this miracle and we want Him to do it because peace, prosperity, health, and ease of life is something that all of us want. Nobody wants affliction. Nobody says, oh, me, me, I want to be afflicted. I, I want to suffer. Nobody wants that. So there's this natural tendency in all of us to wish that we could all be healed just by the touch of a hand. Thomas. All right. As usual, coming from left field. But... James chapter 5. Um, you can turn there if you want. I'm going to read it because that's the passage that you're, you're asking about. James chapter 5. Uh, beginning at verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He has to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So now the question in that passage would be, what is the, what is the practice being described? What type of sickness 
is being, what type of sickness is being spoken of? Um, what is the cause of the sickness and what is the anointing of oil? Those are the four questions that just jumped to my mind. So let's deal with each one of those. First, what is the practice being described? It is the practice of, of the elders of the church coming in response to the request of the person who is sick. So I think it's the person who is sick who bears the responsibility to come and ask the elders, come and pray for me. And we, Jess and Dave and I, have had that happen before. And Jess and I went down to Coeur d'Alene and prayed for a particular individual who was sick, perpetually sick. And when we did it, here's what we did. We first went in with the assumption that this person was a believer, which we know that she was. And our goal was to offer her the opportunity to confess her sin. It is possible that the sickness being described here is a sickness that is the result of sin. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about those who at the Lord's table for the communion um, were making a blasphemous mockery out of it by becoming drunk and all the immorality and the selfishness and pride and everything that was part of the communion service. And Paul says, for this reason, um, uh, for this reason, a number among you are asleep and a number are sick. Or sick and a number sleep, however it is. There were some who were dead as a judgment from God and there were some who were sick because of this sin as a judgment from God. So it's possible that sickness comes our way as a result of our personal sin. We've sinned against the Lord, and as part of that chastening, there is a physical sickness that afflicts us. God is always free to afflict us with illness or suffering as a chastisement or a punishment for our sin to drive us back to him. So in the context of James 5, you notice that Paul he talks about um, the confession, the uh, verse 15, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So what's being described here as part of this healing process is the confession of sin. So if I were to come in, somebody were to say to me, look, I've been sick. I've been sick for months, and it looks like it's not getting any better. I'm being afflicted. Come and pray for me. Jess and Dave and I would show up, and we would say, okay, first off, the question is, do you have any unconfessed sin in your life? Have you examined yourself and had an opportunity to confess your sin? And if, if this has never even entered into your mind, then you need to take some time to examine yourself to see if the affliction that you're under is a result of personal sin. Because the scripture says that if you confess your sin, if you repent of that, then you will be healed. But the healing is a result of the confession and the repentance from sin, which tells me that the sickness itself was the result of the, the presence of sin. So if the sickness results from the sin and the person confesses the sin, then the sickness will leave. And that's what's being described in James 5. It is a sickness that is leading somebody, it is an illness that is the result of personal sin. And so the the command is you confess your sins to one another. So in the presence of the elders, that's the opportunity to say, look, here's what I've been doing, here's what I've been involved in, this is why I think I'm being afflicted. Okay, well, you repent of that, you confess that, you confess that to the person, you deal with whatever it is that you've been doing, and now we pray and if this sickness is a result of the sin, then you will be healed. It will result in your healing. Does that make sense? So, but not all sickness is a result of sin. <laughs> Some sickness is the result of living in a sin-cursed fallen world. And so that is where I think that the command to anoint somebody with oil comes in. It's not a mystical, holy oil that the TV evangelist will send you for your gift of $100 or more. <laughs> It's not any kind of special oil that's being described here. I believe, and I think this is Jess's position too, I believe that the oil being described here is the application of medicine. In that day, that is what they did. They applied oil. They applied medicinal 
rubs and things like that. I believe that that's what's being described here. If after, so, so if I got sick with something, here's the process that I would go through. I get afflicted, let's say it's a cancer of whatever, a really bad one. I would ask myself, here's my flow, here's my flow chart in my mind, which I think fits with James 5. I would ask myself, is this the result of sin or is this the result of living in a sinful world? Because it can be just affliction, sanctified affliction for the glory of God because I'm mature enough to handle this, and so God gave me this for his glory, or it could be that this is the result of sin. Okay, I'm going to assume that it can be the result of either one of these. So I'm going to pursue, in parallel form, two two lines of cure. First, before anything else, I'm going to assume that this could be the result of my sin. So I'm going to begin immediately to examine myself. Is there some duty that I've left unperformed? Is there something that I have done to my wife? Is there something I've done to my kids? Have I offended somebody else? Have I been unfaithful to my calling? Um, is there some seen or unforeseen sin in my own life? I'm going to examine that before the Lord. At the same time, I'm going to pursue all of the best medical treatment that I can. And as a result of one of those two, if it's a result of my sin, then the sickness will be lifted when I repent of my sin. If it's the result of just living in a sin-cursed fallen world, then I'm either going to die from it as to the glory of God, or through the proper application of medical treatment, God is going to use that to heal me to his glory. that makes sense? So that's what I think is being described in James chapter 5. I don't think it's a mystical, a mystical thing that goes on with some special oil that elders have in their pocket that nobody else gets to see unless you happen to get sick. It's not car oil. It's not canola oil. It's not anything like that. I believe that it is a reference to the practice of pursuing all of the normal applications of healing for whatever illness it is that's being described. All the while recognizing my illness could be the cause of one or two things. And so I'm going to try and deal with the illness in this way. And if it's a result of my sin, then in confessing the sin, calling in the elders and anointing the oil, confessing the sin, this sin is going to be dealt with and the disease will go, the disease will leave as well. And it has to be believing. Yeah, it has to be believing. Now, in the case, I just kind of started down a path. In a case, we had um, somebody that many of you would know, and I'm not going to give any names because I don't want to do this, who was sick and had been sick and had been in a hospital down in Coeur d'Alene, and her family, and she asked if Jess and I would come down and pray for her. So we did. We went down to Coeur d'Alene. We gathered around her bedside, and we talked about sin, and there was no apparent sin. She didn't think there was sin. There was no sin in the family, nothing that seemed like it would be the result of this. And we prayed for her. Jess and I did. We prayed, gathered around, held hands and prayed. We didn't anoint with any oil, no physical oil. We just stood by the bedside of this girl and prayed. And within 24 hours, she was better and ready to be released. And in that case, God honored it and did exactly what it was. She was receiving medical treatment. We talked about sin and whether it was a result of sin. Didn't think that it was. There's nothing to confess. And so we prayed and she prayed and we all prayed together, trusting God for this. And God, in answer to that prayer and the prayer of faith, raised her up. And healed her. And it was drastic. Day to day, it was night and day. So that's what I think James 5 is describing. So is it possible for somebody to be healed today? I certainly believe it is, and I think it happens all the time. I think the genuine true healings are the most under-publicized aspect of what God does in the world. It's all of the garbage fake stuff that gets the headlines in Christianity. But there are genuine, true, legitimate healings all the time that happen, as sometimes as a result of other people praying for us and sometimes just a result of us praying. 
sometime as a result of us pursuing medical treatment and God working through doctors and medications and the technology that he's given to us to bring about healing. Anytime anybody is healed, I believe it's God that does it. Is it a miracle? I see, I preached two whole sermons on this that are on the website. Now we're, okay. My understanding of your answer is no. No. I don't think that every healing is a miracle. Because we need to distinguish between what a miracle is and what a divine providence is. God does things all, all the time. Um, okay, let me give you, let me give you an example. I pray for God to provide for my daily sustenance. And this next month is going to be a real tight month. So I'm praying for that, and God gives me this job, which provides a little bit, and then this job that provides a little bit, and kind of going through, and then this bill doesn't come up. I thought it was going to be, and this bill is less, and everything just kind of goes on the normal way through the month. And you get to the end of the month, and um, there is, I've looked back over the month, and all my needs have been met. God has provided everything that I've needed. Is that a miracle, or is that a providential answer to prayer? It's a providential answer to prayer. There's nothing miraculous that happened. Me working is not a miracle. Some people might think it is, but me working is not a miracle. Um, my bills being less than I expected is not a miracle. Me getting a call from somebody that need to do a job is not a miracle. All of those things happen every day. Those are God's providential provisions. Now, let's say at the beginning of that same month, I pray, God, this is going to be really tight this month. I don't know what I'm going to do or how I'm going to make ends meet. Please, in some way, provide. And no sooner do I say, Amen, then a phone call comes in, and it is my great uncle Joe who says, I was just thinking about you. I wanted to give you 2000 bucks this month just because I love you. Is that a miracle or providence? I would say that that's, that's a miracle. That's a miracle. Or I pray for food, and every time I go to the fridge, I pour a cup of milk every day out of that same gallon, and that gallon never empties. That's a miracle. Or I, I'm eating T-bone steaks every day out of my freezer, and I know there's only three packets, and I eat T-bone steaks every day for the whole month, and there's the same three packets at the end of the month. That's a miracle. That's not providential. That's a miracle. It is some suspension of the normal operation of life to do something miraculous. But God does things every day which are providential. I think it's in the best interest of Christians to study the providences of God. Um, when you look at how God provides and what he does, and you, you start to understand the providential care of God, that he rules and works in all of the details, then you can kind of step back from life and look at everything that goes on and say, look at the hand of God. Look at the tapestry that he is weaving, his, his perfect plan. It's all unfolding just according to plan. Look, he's involved here and he's involved there and he's involved there. But when Christians get myopic and they just, all they see, they're looking for that, that miraculous supernatural display. And they don't think that God is at work in any other way unless God is doing miracle after miracle after miracle. And some people have to have the miracle in order to feel close to God or to feel blessed by God or to feel like they're walking with God. And I think that's an entirely wrong outlook. I think we should look at life, all of it is God's providential outworking, and say, look at that, I, I woke up this morning. That's providence. Another day is given to me. And all my kids are healthy, and I have this food to eat, and I have this job to go to, and the electricity works, and I have heat. All of these things are God's gift to me, even in the small things. But if all we're looking for for our confidence in God's ability and working is the miracle, then we miss all of the providential care that he showers on us each and every day. Which, So there's a difference between miracle. Not every healing is a miracle. Many healings are providential. It's the doctor, and it's the medication, and it's the treatments, and it's the chemo, 
and it's the diet and it's the exercise and all of that are the providential things that God uses to heal me. But it's still God working through all of those things as the instruments to heal me. There's nothing miraculous about it. It's providential. Now, if I go to the doctor one day and I've got cancer in 90% of my organs, i got a week to live, and the MRI is there, and I am one massive tumor. It's amazing I can even live. So I go in the very following day to find out what it is that I need to do for treatment or to ease the pain, and they do another scan, and there's not a cancer cell in my body. And I have done nothing else but pray. That's a miracle. But God didn't do it through a miracle worker. He did it through what? Prayer. He did it providentially, sovereignly, His way, for His glory. Now look, I don't care if it's it's chemo and two years of surgeries and chemo treatments and I'm healed, or if God heals me overnight, it's still the healing hand of God either way it happens. One is providence, one is a miracle. Technically, we should be done right now, so if you have kids and you need to pick them up from Sunday school, now's your time to run and fetch them. Otherwise, we have time for maybe one more question. Boy, a lot on signs and wonders today, which was kind of odd because I had expected, given what Jess has been teaching on, to be talking about election and things like that because he'd been in Romans 9 and didn't get any of those questions. That's nice. You got all that down. That's good. I understand entirely how the sovereignty of God and the free will of man work out together. Not a question in my mind. Go ahead, Dan. People can be well-meaning but very inconsiderate sometimes in the advice that they give in situations like that. And that's the, um, Diane was just saying there are some people who, who have said to her son who's going through cancer and cancer treatments right now that you just need to stop doing this and stop doing that and just trust God for the healing. And I think that that is, that's the type of mentality I think that comes out of some of that signs and wonders movement that I think is unhealthy. And I think it's a horrible consequence of it. I think that if somebody, if somebody decided, you know what, <clears throat> I'm not going to pursue treatment right now. And here are my reasons why I'm not going to pursue treatment. I would say, to the glory of God. Whatever it is that you choose, you're free to, you're free to not pursue treatment if you want. And people might pursue or not pursue treatment for different reasons. And I think that people can do that as an act of faith and an act of wisdom and something that they do in counsel with their family. And it's completely and totally legitimate. And I would never question somebody's decision to do that. There are other times when somebody says, I've been diagnosed with this, and I'm going to pursue the most aggressive treatment that I can, and here are my reasons for doing it. Um, now, if they say, if, if in saying that they say, it's because I don't trust God to heal me that I'm going to go see my doctor, then I think that that's sin. But if they are saying, I'm trusting that God is going to heal me as I apply the means of working that out, I believe that God, and I believe that God can heal me, but I'm also going to pursue this because I'm not going to neglect the means that God might use to heal me in doing this because God can use either one. Um, and that's probably how, how um, Dave is doing it. John Ambrose is another example of that. He was a guy who said, uh, I'm going to stop treatment. At one point he said, I'm going to stop treatment and I'm just going to let nature take its course and I'm done fighting it. At other times he has aggressively pursued treatments. But all the while his attitude and Ellen's attitude have been we're just going to do this for the glory of God, and we're going to let God do what God is going to do. We trust that God can heal me instantly any time that he wanted to. That's our confidence. But at the same time, I'm going to apply all of the means at my disposal to see to it that God has the opportunity to heal me any time he wants to. And it's just that it's that trust in God 
and at the same time, the application of every means possible to affect the end that God has ordained. Because God ordains the means as well as the end. That's why I trust God to save his people, but I also preach the gospel to all, all men. Um, that's why I believe that God is going to make me holy and sanctify me and grow me in holiness. But I don't say, well, because God's going to do that, I don't have to do anything else. I'm just going to trust God. He's going to make me holy. I apply the means of grace to pursue my own holiness in working out my own salvation with fear and trembling. So it's the application of the God-ordained means to accomplish the God-ordained end, knowing that God can accomplish the end in however he wants. But he has called us to apply the appropriate means to accomplish the end that he has ordained for us. We're going to deal with this, and, and I'm not going to get into this because we're going to talk about it in John 4 in just a few minutes, but there is a, there is a sanctified rule for affliction. Suffering, suffering by itself is horrible, but sanctified suffering is better than health. Sanctified suffering is better than health because God does something in that that he's not doing in health. All right, let's pray, and then we'll be done for this morning. Our Father, we are thankful that you have given us your word and that it is clear, and we've discussed a lot of very complicated and complex and difficult things this morning. We pray that you'd help us to think rightly about these things and to keep your sovereignty in our in our view and also to trust you wholly and completely. We know that you are a sovereign and providential God. We thank you that you have ordained for us the means as well as the end, and we pray that in trusting you we might glorify and honor you in all of our decisions and our doings. Help us, O oh God, to discern between truth and error and right and wrong and help us to think about things according to your word. And may your word fill our hearts and fill our minds and affect our thinking and our approach to life and all that we do. We commit our time to follow to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.